If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Today is one of those days I get the privilege of preaching in both services, and I appreciate your uh, grace and mercy and just flexibility. Allow us to do this from time to time. Uh, Last week, we talked a little bit about advance the ministry. Uh, So hopefully you've received another one of those brochures today. Uh, We're going to get a few of them in your hands over the next few weeks so that uh, everyone has one. And I just want to make one comment today, and that concerns the advance the ministry offering uh, that is just one part of that little booklet that you received. So uh, we're going to veer a little away from our series this morning, uh, and then we'll come back to it next week, and then we'll preach uh, on the 30th, and then the first Sunday of October, October the 6th. Church, I want us to have a special offering, and um, you give generously week in and week out. Uh, You have been a faithful church to give this year. Uh, especially considering uh, all of the economic pressures that people are facing. Uh, but ministry here, ministry here is, um, is just going off like a firecracker. There are so many good things happening. I wasn't able to be at the men's breakfast yesterday, but I understand over 70 men uh, came out and joined us for that. Um, that's just one example of a new ministry that's begun here at our church. And it seems like every ministry is hitting on all cylinders. Uh, the campus is busier than ever. Our ministers are busier than ever. And, and there are just financial needs that go along with that. Uh, we're doing more and what we're doing oftentimes because of inflation costs more. And so while this isn't really the focus of these four weeks, I want us on October the 6th, and no pressure on any person, but I want us on October 6th, November the 6th. You see, I'm anxious today to get this thing going. What I want to tell you is if you didn't do it October 6th, now there's a late penalty. So on November the 6th, um, I want us to have a special, I want us to have a special offering. It'll go to ministry expenses, um, like our other offerings, budgeted ministry expenses. Um, but my family, uh, what we're going to seek to do is to give what we ordinarily would give in a month. Uh, we'll give our normal giving for the month of November, uh, but we're going to give one more time. Now, some families that doesn't fit. Don't miss a bill to give uh, extra to this uh, advance the ministry offering. Uh, some people can do perhaps uh, quite, quite a bit more than that. Uh, what matters is just that we all participate. And we're so excited about the things coming up in ministry in the next few weeks and months. I want us to step into that with our best foot forward. And I think this will be a way we can celebrate just how good the Lord has been to First Baptist Church in the last, uh, well, long time, uh, really decades, but especially in the last year. Well, First Samuel chapter 15, I want to share with you today a shocking verse about a shocking event 
that hopefully will deliver a shock to your heart uh, for the glory of God. We've been talking about the fall of Saul. And we said we'd spend four weeks talking about some of the specifics of why and how Saul, the king of Israel, how he lost his reign. And we've done that twice. We're going to pick up in the next two weeks and, and close that out. But we've got a little bit of an intermission this week because I want to do something in the other service, in the summit service. And in this intermission, I want us to look at, well, it's the part of the story that most often gets skipped. And you'll see in a moment why it gets skipped. Uh, Saul has failed. He fails in chapter 13 with his battle against the Philistines. He didn't actually fail in battle, but he failed to be obedient to the Lord. He failed to trust the Lord. And then we come to another test. This is verses, uh, an enemy called the Amalekites in chapter 15. And again, Saul fails, doesn't fail on the battlefield, but he fails to honor the Lord. So a part of the command of God in that second battle was for Saul and the forces to completely destroy the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a wicked people and they had caused all kinds of wicked things to happen over decades and decades and decades. And so God had said the Amalekites would be destroyed. And that was the instruction that was given to Saul. But Saul attacks the Amalekites and he does something different. We talked about it last week. He decided he had a better plan than God's plan. He decided that he would trust himself instead of the Lord and the instructions of the Lord. And so Saul kept many of the animals, the best of the animals. And Saul kept the king of the Amalekites. His name was Agag. Now, why would Saul keep Agag? Uh, likely just for vanity. Uh, what kings would often do in those days is once a year or so, they would... Uh, they would pull from prison uh, these conquered kings and they would parade them in front of the people as a way of saying, look how great I am. I was able to conquer these kings. Well, that's what Saul did. Now, what is Samuel going to do? We've been focusing on Saul, but today I want us to focus on Samuel. So Samuel, he is the prophet of God. He is the spokesman of God. Samuel shows up and there is Agag, king of the Amalekites. God had specifically said that Agag, this wicked man, this wicked king should be killed. But there he is. So what is the man of God going to do? Unless you know the Bible story, I promise you wouldn't guess this in a million years. So let's look at verses 32 and 33 of 1 Samuel 15. The Bible says, Samuel said, bring me King Agag of Amalek. And Agag came to him trembling. And he thought, certainly the bitterness of death has come. He had no idea. Verse 33, Samuel declared, as your father has made, as your sword rather, has made women childless, so your mother will be childless. Then he hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord 
at Gilgal. I want you to get this mental picture, Samuel, prophet of God. I picture him as a, uh, I'm speculating, but he's this old weathered man, as all good prophets, he, he's bald-headed, <laughs> but he has a flowing beard. I, uh, I picture him as Gandalf the Gray, if you know who that is. And he walks up to Agag, the king of Amalek, and he says, you see it there in verse 33, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. Now, I don't think that was his best Mother's Day message, (laughs) but that's what he said. And then the prophet, the preacher, lifted up his sword. And you notice the Bible doesn't say that he stabbed Agag or cut Agag. It says that he hacked him to pieces. There are Hebrew words. In fact, we're going to see it four more times in our study of 1 and 2 Samuel. Times when people were stabbed with a sword and killed. This is not that situation. These are different words because this is a different thing. Samuel hacks Agag into pieces. And I just want you to get the mental picture of this. It is a violent execution. Um, I may get in trouble for this reference, but uh, I was thinking this week it is Liam Neeson-esque. You know what that is? If you don't, then you're just more godly than the rest of us. But uh, (laughs) this will ring a bell with some of you. Uh, What I do have are a very particular set of skills. And I can imagine that that's how this conversation began in the Living Bible Version. And then it was a messy thing. Uh, If you cut a person up into pieces, I mean, with a sword, or it probably would have looked more like an axe to us. It was time consuming. This wasn't uh, over quickly. Maybe it took the prophet 10 minutes or 30 minutes or 40 minutes hacking Agag to pieces. And it was unnecessary at least unnecessary if the goal was just to kill Agag. Agag was dead long before he was in a dozen pieces. So there must be something deeper here. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that nobody ever quotes 1 Samuel 15, 33 as their favorite Bible verse. <laughs> and the truth is that 1 Samuel fifteen thirty three gets very little attention And you can see why. It's really an R-rated verse. Uh, People don't know what to do with this. It disturbs them. I was was studying it this week. I've actually never preached on this verse until today. Uh, But I began to go through my commentaries and and my resources. And so I pulled off uh, the shelf the Preacher's Commentary Series, Volume 8, 1st and 2nd Samuel. And it completely skips this verse. So then I pull off the American commentary, which is a Baptist commentary, Lifeway commentary, First and Second Samuel, volume seven, completely skips the verse. And then I pull out the trusted Warren Wearsby. Now I respect all of these people. That's why I have their commentaries. 
Warren Wearsby, you probably have some of these at home, the B series commentaries. They've been out for years and years. Lots of Sunday school classes have used them. And his uh, commentary on 1 Samuel is called Be Successful. And you know what he does when he gets to this verse? He skips it. (laughs) Then, and this will surprise you, I have the transcript of everything that Adrian Rogers, and that name won't mean something to everybody, but to some of you, famous pastor, Baptist pastor, uh, a man I respect uh, greatly. So I have a transcript of every word he said from the pulpit at Bellevue Baptist Church in his 43-year tenure. And I did a little search. Uh, He spoke the word Agag 24 times in 43 years, but never once mentioned his execution. This is an easy verse to skip. But I think if we will buckle down and tackle this knuckle sandwich, I think we're going to learn something very, very important. In fact, 1 Samuel 15, 33 may be your favorite Bible verse when we finish. So here we go. And we don't have much time. We're going to go quickly. Uh, The life hacking with Samuel. Uh, And if you didn't catch that, you will. Your wife will explain it to you. All right. Number one, first thing we learn is that God hates sin. Why do you think that the execution of Agag was so violent, so violent? Well, it was violent because it is a picture of how much God hates sin. Now it may seem over the top to you that Samuel would hack him into pieces, but Agag was a wicked man and his The fact that he was alive stood for the sin of King Saul. If we could see sin like God sees sin, church, this wouldn't bother us at all. This is a picture of how much God hates, how much God despises sin. And if you want to see this same picture in the New Testament, you know where you would turn? You'd turn to the Gospels and you'd read about the crucifixion of Christ. That was a bloody execution because it's a window, a tiny window, but it's a window into how God sees sin. God hates sin. In 2004, there was a movie, The Passion of the Christ. Many of you probably saw that movie. The question as a pastor that I got most often after that movie was, Pastor, why did it have to be so bloody and so violent when they crucified Christ? Well, here's why. Because our sin is so bad. Because God hates sin so much. You know, we have this little phrase that we pass around often today. You've heard it. God hates the sin, but what? loves the sinner. Uh, You know where in the Bible you find that? Nowhere. You find it in a 1929 autobiography of Mohandas Gandhi. Does that surprise you? Now, is there a Bible connection with God hates sin and loves the sinner? Uh, Well, 
It's not that that phrase doesn't contain some truth. It is that it presents a false dichotomy. What it does is it takes two things and puts them together, two things that God would never in his word put together just like that. It is true if you pull it apart. God loves sinners, John three sixteen, Jude verses 22 and 23. And it's also true that God hates sin. Listen to this. Psalm 5 says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. But the biggest problem with that statement is that often we are quick to skip the first part and race to the second part. We, we skip the part that says God hates sin and we just want to focus on God loves sinners. Now God does love sinners, but God hates sin. And if we dismiss the first one, then we corrupt the second one. I tell you an even worse thing we do with that statement. The worst thing is that we apply the first part to other people and we apply the second part to ourselves. God hates sins. God hates your sins, but God loves this sinner, okay? The Bible teaches that God hates sin. And if you're confused about how much he hates sin, look at the story of Samuel hacking Agag to pieces. Or better than that, look at the story of Jesus dying on the cross. We need to be gripped by the fact that God hates sin. Secondly, We learn from this account that in the gospel, sin is defeated, but not destroyed. You know, there's an important theological distinction between sin being defeated and sin being destroyed. Let's look at the pre-hacking version of Agag. So he's the king and he's been defeated. He's lost his power, his influence, his control, but he's still there, right? Agag has been defeated, but he's still right there. Agag can't cause any problems as a defeated prisoner unless his new master gives him an opportunity. But he will. See, there is a difference between somebody being defeated and somebody being destroyed. There's a difference between sin being defeated and sin being destroyed. Now, for Christians... The Bible says very clearly, Romans 6, 6, that when we become a child of God, that sin is defeated, that it loses its authority in our lives. It loses its power over us. We were enslaved to sin and we're enslaved no longer. Sin is defeated, but it's not destroyed. It's not destroyed. It's still there. The change that's happened, imagine this. So before we were children of God, sin was on the inside of us and it was pulling the levers in our lives and it was leading us to say things, do things, have certain attitudes. Now sin has been booted out of our lives, but it still stands on the outside with a bullhorn telling us to pull the levers. You see the difference? Sin's not in control because it's been defeated, but sin has influence because it hasn't been destroyed. So what do we do? 
What do we do with this sin that is seeking to influence us and ruin our lives? Well, we must do what Samuel did. We must be killing the sin, which is number three. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. I think perhaps the best book ever written on the Bible was written by John Owens. It's got an odd title from Romans 8, 13, the mortification of sin. And so I just tell you that if you want to want to read a good book, it's hard to read, but it's worth it. But here's something he said in that book that stuck with me. He said, always be killing sin or sin will always be killing you. You know, from the situation with Agag, we see this. The biggest difference, there was a big difference between how Saul handled Agag and how Samuel handled Agag. How did Saul handle Agag? Well, he kept him around. He was defeated, but he kept Agag around. Maybe he said, you know, just one Amalekite's not going to hurt. Or maybe he said, you know, I have a plan to keep him, keep Agag under control. Or maybe he said, no one around me seems to have a problem with me keeping Agag around. Maybe he said, I can always kill Agag later on. But in the meantime, I'm going to keep him around. And then there were consequences. And I don't have time to go through all of this, but Saul not only kept Agag around, but he spared some other Amalekites. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, the Amalekites had formed a new army and they attack and they cause all kinds of problems. And then you go all the way forward to the story of Esther. Those of you who are Bible students, you know the story of Esther. There was a man by the name of Haman who tried to uh, eradicate the Jews. He wanted to extinguish all the Jewish people. And um, he was foiled, uh, thankfully. But who was this man? His name, Amon, Haman. And the Bible says of his ancestry that he was an Aggie. (laughs) It actually says he was an Agagite. (laughs) But I think that's the same thing. (laughs) He was a descendant of Agag. Listen, because Saul tried to keep Agag and some other Amalekites around, the consequences later nearly destroyed them all. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Samuel had a whole different approach. Where's my sword? We need to be brutal with sin. The reason the Lord includes this shocking episode is to tell me and you that we need to be brutal with sin. Sin must be dealt with ruthlessly. It must be hacked to pieces or it will revive and continue to plunder and pillage our hearts to sap our spiritual strength. We cannot be merciful with Agag or he will devour us. We must treat sin, every sin in our lives, as the enemy that it is. You might think this is just an Old Testament thing and you'd be wrong. Romans chapter eight says, put to death the sins of the body. Put them to death, hack them to pieces. Colossians three says, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Church, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Head bowed, eyes closed, Father in heaven.
Help us to understand from this grotesque, violent, uncomfortable story. Help us understand how much you hate sin and how much we should be killing it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.